Studying through books of the Bible have been, uh, has really been the bread and butter of our church over the years. And uh, today we begin a new series, as you've seen on the screen in the, uh, the book or the letter of First Peter. And you might ask, well, why First Peter? I mean, because from one perspective, uh, we really could open the Bible anywhere and have things that would be profitable to us. That's what uh, Scripture says about itself, that all Scripture is God-breed, that is, is profitable. So we really could go, we could go to Levit- Leviticus, we could go to Psalms, we could go to Revelation, and there would be a quality word that God would have for us. Um, but why First Peter? Well, I've chosen First Peter because... It is so wonderfully relevant to uh, life as we are living it increasingly here in our culture and our society where we find ourselves as Christians and particularly as evangelical Christians uh, increasingly on the margins of society. More and more it seems that to actually believe in Jesus is a you know, small s scandalous sort of thing. And, uh, and, and by that, I mean, not nominal Christianity, nominal Christianity will fit in anywhere. Nominal Christians are accepted, but if you actually believe it, like you're one of those crazy people that actually believe the gospel and you really believe in, uh, the resurrection and you really believe in that the world was created and things like that, uh, more and more people are looking down their nose at that and pushing us to the fringe of the culture. And first Peter is written for the church in exile. First Peter is written for a church on the margins. It is written for the persecuted church. It's written uh, for the ostracized church. It is written for the hated church. I read somebody that basically said, uh, the more irrelevant Christianity becomes, the more relevant first Peter becomes because it's written for that church that is in exile in its culture. The title of the series comes from the first words in uh, Peter's letter where he addresses it and says, to those who are elect exiles, exiles where and exiles why we're going to uh, get into. And I dare say that by the time we're done with this series, I'll bet first Peter might be in the running for your favorite book in all the Bible. Uh, Luther himself said about first Peter that it is quote one of the noblest books in the New Testament and he put it on par with Romans and the gospel of John which is saying something isn't it so uh, it's a wonderful letter and I think it's going to be a real blessing to all of us we're going to work through it in a style of teaching uh, known as expository preaching and what that means is that week in and week out we're going to Look at the text as Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote it. We're going to ask the question, what did Peter and the Holy Spirit mean when they wrote that particular text? And then we are going to draw out of that meaning as it was originally intended and apply it to our lives today. What does that mean for us today? I want to encourage you to come uh, each week, every week with expository preaching is a fresh text, which means that it is a fresh word from God for us. And I think that it will be, uh, it will be a blessing. So with that, let me just pray and ask God's blessing on this entire teaching series. Father, we ask that you would please, as you have done uh, down through the centuries, that you would 
take your holy word, that you would uh, enlighten it to our understanding, and that you would powerfully apply it to our lives and to our church and in, in through us to uh, the culture around us. We pray that this series would be just uniquely blessed by you. And all the good that can be done from it has little to do with uh, me or any of our teachers and pastors, but it depends on your Holy Spirit's blessing, and we seek that and we ask for it. Bless even now and in, in, in this day as we begin um, in, in our study. We pray that this would be a great launch, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we always do when we begin a, a book study, we spend time talking about the background to the letter. Now, you might say, well, why is that so important? Can't we just get going in this? Here's why it's important. It's important for the same reason that if you were walking along the street and the wind blew a letter into your, to your path and you picked it up and you read it, on one level, you could understand the letter, couldn't you? Because you can read English, you can read the words, etc. But to know who wrote it, who they wrote it to, and why they wrote it, would fill in all of those things that you can read with all kinds of meaning, wouldn't it? And so that's why we spend time figuring out who wrote this thing and why he wrote it and who he was writing it to. So let's begin by asking that question, who wrote uh, this letter? And you might say, well, that's simple. At the top of my page, it says, it says Peter wrote this letter, right? And indeed, the first verse says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, so... You could say, well, it must be, it must, must be Peter. But realize that just because it says that Peter wrote it is not undeniable proof that Peter wrote it. Uh, this could have been written by somebody else who claimed to have been Peter. And uh, there are always scholars that want to argue against these people actually being the authors of these letters, whether that be Paul or John or, or here Peter. And so there are some scholars that try to stir up controversy, but... To me, it's really uh, difficult seeing it not be Peter, because later in the letter, he's going to say that he was an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. Well, how many Peters are there that were eyewitnesses to the sufferings of Christ? And the early church fathers, and by that I mean the leaders of the church in the post-apostolic age. So after John and Peter and others had died, you have certain church leaders, and they all attribute this letter to being written by the Peter of the Gospels, the disciple, the apostle, Peter. So I think that there is little reason to doubt that Peter actually wrote this letter. And this Peter is the Peter of the Gospels. This is the Peter who had a brother named Andrew who brought him to Jesus. And Jesus met him and changed his name. Do you remember? His name had been Simon. And he said, from this point on, your name is uh, Peter, or which is the Greek word, by the way, for rock. Which is like a cruel joke, I think, on Peter, if you read the story, because perhaps he should have been named Feather, uh, because he's, he's a blows in the wind. But what happens in the story of Peter is that he becomes the rock uh, at the end of the story, as he assumes leadership of the disciples after Jesus' resurrection, as he um, is a leader in the early church. And history tells us that he was uh, crucified upside down in Rome. Uh, and, and refused to be crucified upright like his Savior Jesus. He didn't feel he was worthy to die the same way that Jesus died. Part of the uh, 
importance of 1 Peter and 2 Peter is that given the prominence of Peter in the church, we have very little that he wrote, actually, uh, as compared to like Luke, John, or Paul. Luke wrote Luke and Acts. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. And Paul obviously wrote a bunch of letters in the New Testament. Uh, so we got lots from those guys, but Peter, in his stature, we have very little. We have First Peter and Second Peter, and so it's like the smallness of what we have actually makes it more valuable as we can see the uh, the teaching and the emphases of uh, this key leader in the early church. Now, to who did Paul, uh, Peter write this, and why did he write? And just look at verse one with me a moment. It says, "Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ." To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I'll bet that in your private devotional reading, you get to a verse like that and you sort of skip ahead, don't you? You're like, there's got to be some more applicable thing here than ancient geography, right? I didn't get up this morning to read my Bible, to read ancient geography. Isn't there something a little bit more helpful to me than that? And so we easily skip over those things. And uniquely, I think in first Peter, probably true of all of them, but this is actually one of the keys to understanding the entire letter is that verse right there. Who are these people? What is it talking about? Again, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, what is that all about? All right, quick history lesson. Hang with me. Some of you hated it your sophomore year. This will be short, okay? But a very quick history lesson. We go back to the Roman Empire, and most of us probably heard of the Roman Empire, one of the great human empires in in history, ruled the known world for like 500 years. And they were able to pull that off Because they were really smart. They had policies and things that they did that allowed them to remain in power for like five centuries. And one of the things that they did is actually what Peter is referring to here. uh, and, And that is what is called colonization. Okay, colonization. Here's the way that it worked. The Romans had the great armies. Maybe you've seen movies that portray the Roman armies and the eagle and all of that. They would go into an area that they wanted to conquer. And largely they would conquer. They were really good at warfare. And after they had conquered this region, they would move on to go, you know, do battle in other places. But they needed to maintain power in that region that their army had already conquered. So the strategy for them was that they would colonize that area by sending uh, people from Rome, or who at least were Roman, into that community where they would establish their lives, they would establish business, they would establish some of the things that Roman culture was known for, like the theater or the auditorium or whatever. Um, And by doing that, essentially they would integrate into the culture, actually the culture, the indigenous culture, would integrate into the Roman culture. And by doing that, they were able to exert Roman influence and thought and power into those uh, particular areas. Okay, so these were known as dispersions. Okay, sometimes these were uh, political friends who wanted, if it was a nice area, like if suddenly we conquered Hawaii and said, who wants to go live? I think I'd like to. So all the friends, you know, the friends of the people in charge, they would go and they would colonize Hawaii. 
Sometimes these were political enemies that they wanted out of Rome. All right, take that family and those people and get them over in Galatia. We don't want to see them ever again. And so off they would go. Uh, and, and sometimes it was just people that were like, you know what? We think we can have a better life there. Like you can think about even the story of uh, the United States and the colonies on the East Coast and how people came across on the boats because they wanted a better life in the new, the new world. So Rome would do that. And by doing that, they, they essentially would uh, retain a kind of control over that area by repopulating and integrating. It was essentially colonization uh, by deportation for the purpose of domination. And that's how you retain control for 500 years. So these people that would leave Rome or a Roman uh, community to go into some of these new areas, they essentially lived as exiles there. They were foreigners there. They were Romans there. And uh, the people that were from there knew that they were these people that had come. And this was not always a comfortable thing. Realize the Roman armies would come and conquer. They would wipe out, you know, how, how many people's husbands and fathers in, in, uh, in winning the war. And now you've got representatives from there coming and living amongst us. The people from that land did not look favorably necessarily on them, especially initially. They were always from somewhere else, right? It's kind of like uh, living up here in the north when we hear somebody with a thick southern accent. What do you do? You look at them and you think to yourself, or maybe you even say it, you're not from here, are you, right? And they're like, no, I'm not. I'm from Georgia or Mississippi, right? And you're like, what are you doing up here? Why don't you go home where you belong? Explain some people we have on staff even. Uh, But um, as awkward as that might be for... uh, Southerners to live up here amongst the Yankees. It was much more uncomfortable back in this day. And so they lived in a kind of ostracized way, and there was social awkwardness representing the ideology of the conquering army. So Peter here is writing then to colonists who were also Christians, who for political, social, who knows what reason, had gone into Asia Minor uh, and are now living there as representatives of the Roman Empire. Now, to give you an idea of where we're talking, here's a map. And it's essentially modern-day Turkey. Uh, and some of you maybe are not up on your, you know, Turkey to you is a, uh, a November celebration. Uh, but it's actually a country as well. Um, and so you see some of, you see the Black Sea and you see these communities that are being referred to, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia. These would have been well known in that time and would have been uh, places of influence, cultural influence. Essentially what Peter does in the letter is he takes these Christians' socio-political situation and he draws spiritual meaning from it. He says, yes, you're exiles politically and geographically, but I want to talk to you about what it means to be a spiritual exile. What does it mean to live in an area where you, it's not your homeland. What does it mean to live in an area where people look at you a little cross-eyed and they say to themselves, that person is, they're not really of us. Their values are not 
our values. Their priorities are not our priorities. They're like those Christian people. They're those marginalized people. What is it like and how do we live when we are the ones that are in exile? When we are the weird ones. So Peter writes to these political exiles, but he wants them to see that they are really spiritual exiles and to learn what it means to live amongst people that are very, very different. Okay, very different. And so what he's going to say in this letter is he's going to encourage them to stand strong, to remain faithful, to uh, live obedient to Jesus in spite of the immoral culture around them. Uh, to remain faithful, even though people look at them like we look at Amish people. Kind of like, Man, what's your problem? What's, get with the program here, right? Why aren't you kind of along with what we're doing? That's how they felt. And here's where I think First Peter is so helpful to us. Is, is, and I don't know if you feel this or not. I certainly do. If you talk to some of the old timers around here who remember what it was like to be a Christian like in the 1940s or the 1950s and maybe the early 1960s, it's a much different feel back then to be a Christian in America than it is in 2015, right? Where even to pronounce Christian faith in public media in some way is to be scorned or to have the plug pulled, right? Get him off of there immediately. We don't want any of that kind of stuff going across the airwaves. What do we do? How do we live? What are we supposed to be like? And again, I'm talking about real Christians, nominal Christians, fit in just fine. Okay? I'm talking about the people that actually believe this stuff and try to live it out. How do we do it? These are the exiles that Peter is writing to. Now, let's ask, why are we exiles and what is the purpose for all of this? So let's get into the text now. And, uh, and begin to uh, kind of uh, uh, do our little exposition here. I begin again, again in verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia church. Do you kind of get what that means now? Okay. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, a quick read here, and again, that morning devotional uh, moment where I'm trying to find something for my day, we could easily miss how important what Peter is saying here is. Because essentially what Peter is doing here is he's tipping his hand to the entire letter. It's kind of like in a symphony or something where in the prelude you hear a little piece of the of the melody and you're like you pick up on it or that little star wars theme if you're watching a star wars movie you sort of hear that uh, it's either vader or it's skywalker you know and you're like you pick up on it even in the in the in the opening scene of the movie you kind of get a sense of what's coming that's what this is he's he's basically it's it's first peter in microcosm peter what are you going to say what is your big point to these people that are living in spiritual exile And he begins in verse 2 with a series of purpose statements. The why question. Now, my wife Jennifer and I, we have a 19-year-old daughter. And what's wonderful at this point is that she has not discovered the word why. It's just not there yet. Did I say something wrong? Did I say year-old? Peter's got something to say about that too. 19-month-old daughter, yes. 
So, um, and see, we're getting that kind of Gary feel going on here. I like that. Keep it up. Keep it up. Um, 19-month-old daughter. So she's learning words at an amazing clip right now. We're thankful she's not yet learned the word why. She is unaware at this point that in life there is all of this sort of philosophical stuff that underlies why we do what we do. So at this point we just say, don't throw your food. She's never said, well, why is that not allowed, right? She's unaware of purpose behind things. Peter wants to make sure that we understand that there is purpose behind things, even exile. Even the experience of spiritual exile, there's a purpose behind it. There is a why behind it. And we see that from the get-go. Notice, what kind of exiles are they? And can I say the question, what kind of exiles are we? What is the descriptive word for exiles? It is what? You have Bibles. Look, what is the word before exiles? We are what exiles? We're elect exiles. Elect exiles. What? I am experiencing what I'm experiencing because there's somebody that chose to put me here. Chose to give me this experience. Because that's what the word elect means. It just, it means chose, chosen. We are chosen exiles. You know, most exiles don't think that they are chosen exiles. You can think about um, the Jews in World War II, for example, in... uh, in uh, Poland and the ghetto there, if you've uh, seen that or studied that, they were victims of circumstance. They were victims of socio-political things that were beyond their control, and they suffered greatly in, uh, in that experience. Or the Syrian refugees in our contemporary world, who there's all these, you know, there's big sort of uh, uh, socio-political things that are at play that are creating the circumstances that they find themselves in. You could go to a Syrian refugee and say, you know, how did this happen? And he would say, well, my, the president of this company, country and this is going on and all of that. They would never have the thought in their mind that they were chosen to be Syrian refugees. Why? Because it's circumstantial. But here... Peter doesn't say, I'm so sorry that you are having this experience living as Christians in that land. He says, you are having that experience by divine choice. There is a God behind all of this. You are not just exiles randomly. You are exiles divinely. You have been chosen for this experience. And what a difference it makes when I realize that there is a purpose behind the pain. There is an answer to the question of why. And behind all of that is a God who is sovereignly working out everything according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.11. Think about the Israelites as another sort of exile example. If you know the story of Israel, descendants of Abraham, right? They were all the time living in tents never having a land of their own. God takes them down to Egypt. 400 years, they live largely under oppression there in Egypt. They're living as exiles. They're not in their, the land that, they're not in the promised land. They're not in the land where they're supposed to be. But there they are, and they have horrible, terrible experiences. Well, God leads them out into the hand of Moses, and they go through the Red Sea. It's not that far of a walk from Egypt to the promised land, right? As the crow flies. Where does God take them? 
40 years wandering around in the wilderness. Are they like, God, is your GPS messed up? Because we could just, it's just right there. We just got to go right there. Why you got us going all over here and wandering around like this? What is the purpose behind our wanderings? What is the purpose behind our exile? Why are we experiencing all of these difficulties living a million people in a desert? Why are you doing this, God? And from the words of Moses himself, God says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, God was using their physical experience, their geographical experience for spiritual purposes. And all of the difficulties and all of the uncomfortableness and all of the challenges of living in a desert for 40 years was not about living in a desert for 40 years, but what God wanted that desert to do in them and to teach them. There was a purpose behind it. There was a why behind it. Do you see? So that the sorrows, what Peter is saying here, the sorrows of Christianity on the margins is comforted by the confident knowledge that we have that I am where God wants me to be and the challenges are from the hand of God as well. I am an elect exile. I am not a political exile. I am, I am not a, a chaotic exile. I am where I am by the sovereign choice of God. Which then brings meaning in the midst of the pain and the sorrows and the issues. What do people ask when they're going through a trial? What do we hear even in our church when somebody gets the cancer call? Why? God why are you doing this? Why am I the one of all the people having to suffer this? And what do you say pastorally to people that hear that kind of news? Wow, that's really chaotic. Maybe there isn't a God. No. We say that there is a God. And that circumstance in your life is not chance and you can trust him he is a good god he loves you he sent jesus right and now the christian begins to derive meaning from even the pain of the exile and to see that god is doing something good in it would this not have been wonderfully comforting i mean think about these christians they're living there in asia minor would this not have been uh, comforting for a businessman living in Pontus who is suffering financially because he's a Christian? They know he's a Christian. They don't want to do business with him. He's suffering because of it. Or how about the wife of a pagan husband? You want to talk about personally uncomfortable how about the wife of a of a, a Christian wife of a pagan husband? You want to talk about uh, issues. How about a husband who's living according to the values of the immoral Greco-Roman world around him, and yet you're married to him? 
How do you derive any kind of hope or comfort in the midst of that? You read chapter 3, and you see what Peter has to say to wives who are married to pagan husbands. And you see, whatever, pick your category, all of them. The Christian sees through the physical, political, social issue a good God who is providentially behind that and is actually using that for some good in our life that maybe we can't see. And maybe you can't see right now. I mean, my wife had trouble finding parking today. We have a lot of people sitting right here in front of me. Is it possible maybe one person here is in a time of trouble or has a circumstance they wish was different? What does the word of God have to say to you? You are an elect exile. There is a God who is sovereignly doing the choosing, and it is painful, and it's awkward, and it's difficult, but there is a God behind it. And we believe that by faith. Amen? Amen. So, I'm not in Cappadocia by accident after all. I'm here because God wants me to be in Cappadocia. Nothing is random. Now, the second thing that we have here, besides being chosen by God to be in this exile, is that Peter wants us to, he, he lifts our eyes to God himself, and he wants us to see what, what, uh, what the triune God is doing here. And you see in the text here a very clear Trinitarian statement. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit... For the obedience to Jesus Christ, who is the Son. It's one of the clearest Trinitarian statements in all of Scripture. Father, Son, and Spirit, each of them with a slightly different role in, uh, as being described here. The foreknowledge, first of all, of the Father. Okay, Foreknowledge basically means to, to know in advance. Right? To know in advance. Their exile was sovereignly known by God. God was not surprised. What are those Christians doing over there in Bithynia? I had no idea that they were going to end up in Cappadocia. What are they up to in Galatia? God is never surprised by anything, which is itself an incredible thought, isn't it? If you're God, there are no surprise parties for God. (laughs) He already knows everything, right? He has known all of it and purposed it in eternity past. Which means that when I find myself in Bithynia, God knew in eternity past that this was part of the plan. In fact, that word there is used later in the chapter to say that Christ himself was foreknown. In eternity past, the Father knew the Son. In eternity past, the Father knew that you would be living and doing what you're doing here today. All of it, a sovereign God. There, is no, there are no surprises with God. There is nothing that is random with God. There is nothing that is chaotic with God. He is the sovereign God. No surprises. The sanctifying work of the Spirit. Okay, Sanctification is this word in the New Testament to talk about the process of God working in our lives to shape and mold us into the likeness of Jesus, the Holy Son of God. And so sanctification is this kind of progressive growth and development When I become a Christian, I, to use this text, I I enter into the realm of sanctification. I am now in a process that the Holy Spirit is working in my life. Verse 1 says that they are in Asia. But verse 2 says they're actually in sanctification. So they may want to define themselves geographically. 
right? We're for the Bithynia Bulldogs. Bulldogs. Rawr, rawr. Okay, I'm, 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 I am who I am. Some of you may be cheering sports teams today somehow related to a geography that you used to have. I'm a Packer fan or I'm a um, Cowboys fan or whatever. Like, I'm born in Dallas or something. So you want to define yourself geographically. When your teams aren't doing well, you don't want to define yourself geographically. <laughs> so most of us will be cheering for the Big Ten tomorrow. Sad. But... Uh, Peter wants them to realize that they're not defined by their locale. They are defined, uh, their locale geographically, but by their locale spiritually. You're in the Holy Spirit now. You're in a process. You're in a world, not a pagan land. The life-changing work of Jesus in us is the last thing. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And we see in this that... That the electing work of God, the choosing work of God, is never without its effect. That not only did God sovereignly choose to put them in Bithynia or Galatia, but he chose through that experience to change them, to transform them for the obedience, a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what God is working in all of us. If you're a Christian here today, what's God doing in my life? Well, he's doing a lot of things, but one of the things he's doing is that he is shaping and molding your heart and value mine as well so that I increasingly want to obey the will of God. I want to be obedient to my Savior, Jesus. The obedience to Jesus is part of what we're doing here. And for sprinkling with his blood, and i got to tell you, I don't know what that means. Just being honest. Commentators are all over the place. I'm not sure what that means. I think it refers somehow to the atoning work of Jesus for us, but I'm not exactly sure. Is that okay to say that? Okay. I don't know. But broadly, what this is saying is this. The Father foreknew us, the Spirit sanctifies us, the Son atoned for us and frees us from a life of sin to now this new life in Christ where I am living to the will of God and I am pleasing God with my life. And all of it is by God and for God. He foreknew it. He purposed it. He's working in it right now. He is the sovereign hand, the loving hand behind all of it. So that these people might have thought to themselves, if they were political exiles, they might have thought to themselves, I am in Galatia by the choice of man. And Peter writes this letter and says, you are in Galatia by the choice of God. He is the one that is behind all that is happening here. All right. With the time remaining, I have one application point. And this is just the salutation of the letter. Okay. But one application point that I'd like to talk with you about, uh, and it's this. When we are in exile, we want to change where we are. God wants to change who we are. When we are in exile, God wants, or we want to change where we are. God wants to change who we are. If you talk to an exile and you say, hey, what is the solution to your problem? They are generally going to say, the answer to my problem is to change where I am. Like, I'm not in my homeland. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And if I was to get where I'm supposed to be, in other words, if I was to change my geography, then everything would be great. Like, take a week like this as an example. This week, I feel like a climate exile. I experience a week like we've had around here, and I think to myself, I do not live where I'm supposed to live. I am supposed to live in a warmer climate than this. Friday night, uh, 
Jennifer and I, we're, we spent some time with some friends, and we came back to the church here to pick up my car. I forget how cold it was Friday night, but it was like, you know, zero or minus or something. And uh, we get there, and I get in my car. No. So we spent, I don't know, 45 minutes trying to jump my car off of our van. And uh, it was one of those experiences where there's cold, and then there's that cold, right? (laughs) I was so cold trying to get that thing started. It took us like 45 minutes and I was just absolutely frozen. This was a terrible week around here, right? Horrible week. We're all climate exiles. What do we need? We need to change our geography. We need to live somewhere different. We need a different climate than the one that we've been experiencing. They would have amended in Gary on that. So if you talk to the climate exile, they're going to say, I need a change of geography, right? There's some other place that they would rather be. Do we have any marriage exiles? What's a marriage exile? You've come to the conclusion that the person that you're married to is not the person that you're supposed to be married to. And the solution for you would be to be either not married or married to somebody different. Do we have any vocational exiles here? The solution to happiness in your life would be a different job. You feel like you're being persecuted on the job or you feel like you have an unfair boss or you got some other thing going on. So what's the solution? I need a different job. Do we have any health exiles here? You've got some ailment. You've got some problem. You've got the cancer call. In your mind, what's the solution? I need a different body, right? If I had a different body, then everything would be fine. Or pick your category. Generally speaking, our solution to our problems is to change where we are. And then we read this verse here. Elect exiles. Elect exiles. Do you mean that the exile that I am experiencing, that trial that I am going through, that experience that I wish was different and in my mind I can think of three different ways to get out of it, that that is something that God has brought into my life by His sovereign hand and good? Yes, And Peter goes on here to say that good is something not about changing where you are, but changing the person that you are. In other words, my heart, my mind, my, 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 my spiritual depth and quality. God is in the process of changing that. And you know what? He oftentimes puts us in Cappadocia to do it. We want to get back to Rome. In fact, what's striking here is He doesn't say to exiles of the dispersion, get out of Bithynia now. Get back to Rome. The streets are clean and the coffee's good and the sun is shining. Get out of there. He doesn't say that one place in the whole letter. Why not? Because Peter realized something, that they were elect exiles, that their experience of all of this discomfort was something that God wanted in their life. Well, why would God want that in our life? 
because he uses Bithynia, Cappadocia, and the people and the experiences of our life to produce change that would never happen in Rome. And so here you are today. And spiritually speaking, or, you know, in your life, you feel like you're in exile. And you want change. I wonder if you can hear the word of God today saying to you, here's the word, the change that I want is within you. And as Christians, for us to embrace trials, and this is not easy. I think about trials that I've gone through in my life, and in the midst of it, you're like, I want out now. But to pray to God, Heavenly Father, I'm not sure what you're doing in this. But I sense in my heart that you are breaking me. You're breaking my pride. You're breaking my self-dependence. You're helping me to live by faith. And I just want to say that I surrender to your purpose in Cappadocia. Don't you think I have a loving Heavenly Father would answer that prayer? Don't you think that he delights? In fact, is it possible that he put you there to get you to that point of surrender in the first place? And now from that point, God's purpose can be lived out because that aspect of me, pride, whatever, is taken away in a way now that I can live in obedience to the will of Jesus Christ according to the foreknowledge of the, of, of the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit, as I am made more and more into the likeness of Christ. Oh, by the way, who does that sound like? That whole, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not where I'm from. I'm experiencing pain. And yet, I want your will in my life. Who does that sound like? That, that sounds familiar to me. Is that not Christ himself? Who left his Father's throne above? left his experience of heaven, came into this broken world with all of its pain and all of its sin and all of its brokenness. You you want to talk about somebody who didn't fit in. How about the Son of God on earth with us? Right? How often people looked at him and thought, you must not be from here because you were not buying into the way that we do things at all. And for him to go through that entire experience and to suffer... I think of the old song, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free in a moment. Gone. You can't afford the plane ticket. That was not an issue with Jesus. And yet he remained. And the night before he was crucified, prayed, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, I ask that it would be so. There's an honest prayer. We've all prayed that, right? Take this cup from me, please. Yet not my will, but your will be done. There is the bottom line. When we are in an experience that we deem undesirable, a long-term trial, I think we can be honest with God. I don't want to live in Bithynia. I'm tired of Cappadocia. But my bottom line, God, is that I want what you want in my life. I believe that your plan is better than mine. And I embrace the change that you are working 
within me. This is the example of Jesus himself. And I hope that his example would help us realize that even if you're about to be crucified, you can know that there is a sovereign God who is doing good through it. And indeed he did, through that crucifixion, a savior for the world. And that's just the prelude. That's First Peter. So much more good stuff to come. I hope God blesses and uses it. Let's stand together for prayer.